2014, what a year around this place. I mean, it was something else. And just on the surface to go from two campuses to four campuses all in one year, a remarkable, remarkable uh, thing that God has done. We give him glory for it. And uh, we want 2015 to be uh, another year of uh, faithful ministry here. And thank you for your part in that. I really mean that. This is our weekend of the annual meeting, and that's partly why we made this video. Is It's a year, or it's a, a weekend, where our members, um, we have our annual meeting, and so it's kind of a year to look back, a time to look back on the, on the past year. It also means that uh, because our meeting is between this service and the next, uh, I know this is going to be disappointing, the sermon's a little shorter, a little shorter. So appropriate uh, that I'm speaking on trials in this sermon, and I'm going to get right into it because our time is fleeting. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8, I've entitled this message, God, why am I hurting? Does that resonate, uh, resonate here today? Are you in a time in your life maybe where you are hurting, where there is a trial maybe that is a pain in your life right now? You might say, no, not really, just wait, okay, just wait, it's coming. Life in a broken world brings sorrows to us in all kinds of directions and in ways that we cannot anticipate. That day is most certainly coming. And Peter is writing this letter to a group of geographical exiles in the first century, sent from Rome, living in Asia Minor. But they are, they are spiritual exiles as well. They are suffering in a community that looks at their Christian faith, looks at their rejection of the immorality around them. They look down at them and they are feeling alienated. They are feeling ostracized and they are suffering in many different ways. And so Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them. And it is perhaps more than the only one maybe competing with the book would be the book of Job of uh, delivering to us, giving to us a theology of Christian suffering. How do I handle it? How should I look at it when God sovereignly brings pain into my life? First Peter is a very honest letter. It looks pain in the face and gives an answer. Did you know Christianity has an answer to suffering? That the other religions of the world, the other philosophies, uh, struggle to provide in ways that we'll get into. So maybe you're here today and you're in pain. And you're thinking, this is the sermon for me. Maybe you're here today and you're not in pain. But that day is coming. I want to prepare all of us to suffer so that when we are the ones experiencing that pain, we have a kind of grid. We have a kind of understanding that is ready to embrace the trials that come. I also want to note that uh, Christianity is based on suffering. I mean, our entire faith is built upon the suffering Savior who came into this world God steps into our pain in the person of Jesus, incarnates into this world, lives amongst us, experiences all of the weaknesses, all of the sufferings that we experience, and then suffered himself, dying on the cross, bearing the guilt and shame for all of our sins. Our Savior was a suffering Savior. We can say it that Christianity is, is built on 
suffering. Now that doesn't sound so good. It doesn't look great on a billboard. You know, we're not going to put up a billboard that says Bethel church come suffer with us, right? Because many people, they don't want to hear that. And they want a faith that doesn't include any suffering. And yet it inevitably comes. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for that in your life? So our text is verses uh, 6 and 7, 1 Peter 1. Uh, Please listen as I read. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This passage is Peter's first salvo of teaching on suffering. It's going to continue through the letter. So this isn't everything that he has to say about it. There's much more to come. Notice that he begins with the the little phrase there, in this you rejoice. You wouldn't expect a passage on suffering to have a, and to begin with, a word of joy. And he's referring there to what he's just talked about regarding our living hope. Our hope is living because our hope is in a living Savior. And so because of that, we are, we rejoice in this salvation, this new birth that God has given to us. Notice that joy and pain can coexist. We typically think, you know, when I am in pain, then I'm not joyous. Right? Or when I'm in joyous, I don't have any pain. And yet these two come together, indeed they have to come together, in a Christian theology of suffering. Because there is going to be ongoing problems and pain in life. There are going to be ups and downs, and yet our Christian joy is not based upon our circumstances. It is grounded and based upon something that is enduring. Even Jesus himself, Hebrews who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. So don't see these as enemies. These actually can be friends, joy and pain. We'll get into more of that later. But in this passage, Peter gives four certainties in the midst of suffering, four certainties that a Christian can hold on to, trust and believe in, even when life is hurting. So let's get into these now. Notice the first one is that our trials as Christians are temporary. They are temporary. The text now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter's first point here is chronological. He is pointing something out that is obviously true. Now, it doesn't seem that way to us when we are in the midst of pain. When we are hurting, what do we often think? about the pain that we're feeling. We say things like this. This is never going to change. This is never going to be fixed. I will always feel this way. This pain will never go away. That's how it seems to us, right? Peter says, yes, it will. Yes, it will. Chronologically speaking, Our sufferings and our trials and our pains are very small in duration when compared to the future that the Christian confidently expects. This eternal life that we have. Our lives are fleeting. Our days are numbered. They're short. Eternity is long. 
Peter points that out. He says, you know what? Now for a little while, it's just a little while. It's temporary. You're not always going to feel this way. It's not always going to be this way. A day of change is coming. Chapter 5, verse 10, he writes, And after you have suffered a little while, there he says it again, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's wanting us to realize that, that this trial that I am in is finite. Eternity is unending. My trial is temporary. Eternity is forever. And when I look at things from that grand perspective, it helps me put it into uh, proper perspective. When I obsess about my trials, I think it's always going to be this way. Do you ever get sort of melodramatic about things, right? Oh, it's never going to be better. My life is over. You know, teenage girl says that when who knows what happened to her, right? And she's, oh, you know. And we look at her and we say, that is so immature. Peter says, when we look at our trials like it's always going to be that way, we're looking immaturely. We're not seeing things from the grand perspective. Our trials are temporary. Someday, the present pain of our life will be over. Someday, Jesus himself is going to confirm, establish, comfort, minister. Someday, we are going to look back at our trials and we are going to agree with God regarding them. Can you believe that? Now, you might be in a trial right now going, I will never say that this was okay. I will never agree with this. Someday, God, I believe, is going to give us understanding regarding why this happened and why that happened and why that happened. I talked with a man after first service today. He's losing his job. He has 30 days. He was talking to uh, somebody about this, and that person said to him, I haven't been to church since Vietnam. But in light of the way you're responding to this, I might give it another chance. He always had tears in his eyes after first service to this point that I'm making. He goes, oh, these three years have been so hard, but maybe I see why God's doing it. Don't you think heaven is going to be that kind of an experience where God goes, see when that happened right there? I did this with that, with that person's life, and then this was the fruit of it, and we're going to be going, I had no idea. And when we see it in the big picture, don't you think we will go, you know, God, you are infinitely wise. I now agree with that. And if I was you, I would have brought that into my life. Praise be to God. Okay? Heaven will be that, I think. For a Christian, realize, friends, for a Christian, this life that we're in right now, this is as bad as it gets. Our lives right now are the worst experience that we are ever going to have. Why? Because eternity is going to be bliss, heaven, and joy. So this is as bad as it gets for the Christian. For the unbeliever, it's the opposite. This is as good as it gets. Life in this broken world with all of its pain and all of its uncertainty is far better than what lies ahead for the unbeliever. But for us, this is as bad as it gets. This is temporary pain. That helps, doesn't it? Indeed, it does. Secondly, Peter points out that 
trials are painful. Trials are painful. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's a pretty good word to describe what pain feels like, right? It's grievous to us. And do I really need a lot of proof text on this one? To to prove to you that trials are painful. That we feel within us when we are in a trial. And by trial here, it's, it's all of it. The various trials that he talks about. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be relational. It can be marital. It can be financial. It can be political. It can be injustice. It can be emotional worry, fear, uh, misery, depression, and on, I mean, the things that, the things that can create pain in us are incredibly varied, aren't they? All of them we feel very personally when we experience them. I also find over time in my life that not only are the trials varied, but my ability to handle them is varied. There are things that when I was younger wouldn't have bothered me. Now they bother me. Like birthdays. There are things that when I was young bothered me, but now from a perspective of maturity, doesn't bother me anymore, right? It's so varied. It's so changing. But over all of that, we certainly can say the trials are painful. We would rather not be in them. Amen. Okay. That'd be my preference. A trouble-free life. No more trials. I mean, that'd be like heaven, wouldn't it? Oh, wait, it is heaven. (laughs) Are you with me? Okay. All right. Third, reality and certainty with trials. And this now gets into kind of the nub of what Peter is wanting us to see, is that trials are revealing and trials are refining. Again, the text. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is one of the biggest things that we want to know when we are in the midst of a trial? We search for why, right? Why is this happening Why am I feeling this? Why am I sorrowing like I am? Why am I so depressed about this? And atheism comes along and gives what answer? Nothing. Secular humanism comes along and gives what answer? Nothing. Agnosticism comes along and gives what answer? E. Evolutionary theory comes along and gives what answer to our pain? Nothing. Christianity comes along and it's got a purpose statement. Right there you see it. So that. Why do I go through the troubles that I do? Why do I go through these things? Is there some reason behind it? And indeed there is. In fact, you see previously he says, if necessary about our trials. If necessary, what do you mean if necessary? That seems to indicate somebody is determining whether I ought to go through this or not. Is there a sovereign somebody that is sovereignly guiding and directing in the details of my life? And determining whether this is good or not, necessary or not. Indeed, that is Christianity. 
that there is a sovereign God who doesn't simply, like the agnostics teach, live out there in the extended world and hope the best for us, but rather he is sovereignly over every single detail of our life. There is nothing that will ever happen to the Christian that we uh, that, that God did not sovereignly bring to us. Now, by that, it doesn't mean that God endorses evil. And someday we will never endorse evil either. We'll never look at the Holocaust and say, yeah, great. But God uses evil and God uses these things to accomplish his purposes. That's what Joseph said in Genesis, right, to his brothers. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. That's the, the, the uh, wonder of the mystery of God that he can, in the complexities of the universe, use even evil for his divine good and sovereign purposes. And so we see then that in, Christian, in a Christian theology of suffering, there is a purpose to it. And I think that alone is one of the great certainties that we have to cling to. That this is not random. This is not chaos. This is not Satan winning. Rather, this is something that God is sovereignly guiding and directing. There is a purpose behind it. Sometimes that doesn't make sense to us. When the kind and godly young man dies. Or when the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe you feel about that way about yourself. I'm, I'm busting my butt. I'm trying to be a good employee, student, wife, husband, parent, whatever. And here I am. I'm dying on the vine. And you look at your neighbor who they're immoral. They profane God's name. And they just smile all the time. And you're like, that doesn't seem fair to me. As the hymn says... It is our God who does each day what he deems best. We trust that pain has a purpose and that God is behind it. The same faith that can believe in Jesus and trust my entire eternity to the truthfulness that Jesus did bear my guilt as he died on the cross is the same faith that now as a Christian in the midst of my suffering appropriates the promises of God And believes that this trial is as well under the sovereign hand of God. And that he is doing something with it. We say, well, what is that something? Pastor Steve, could you please help? Notice what Peter says. What purpose do they serve? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What Peter does here is he anticipates maybe people sort of getting lost in his theology, and he gives a very clear illustration that they could all understand, and we can all understand here as well. He brings up gold. Now, ancient people were interested in gold. Why? It was the most precious commodity that they had. I mean, even today, if you listen to the radio and different things, you see these advertisements, the stock market's uncertain, buy gold, right? And they show gold bars and people smiling because they have gold bars and they encourage you to buy gold. It's the only lasting value in the world. That's the way that they viewed it in the first century. It was their most precious commodity. It was the most long lasting thing that they had, gold. So 
If you've ever seen uh, King Tut's tomb or pictures of the jewelry and the gold at King Tut's tomb, then you know that the ancient world, they were really good with gold. I mean, they had figured out how to take gold out of the mountain and turn it into something very beautiful, incredibly beautiful and intricate. So how do they do it? Well, like today, what they would do is they would mine the gold and then they would heat it. Right? They would heat up that gold with fires in a furnace. They would heat it up and heat it up and heat it up. And gold reaches a point where it melts. And as it gets hotter, the hotter it gets, the more the impurities of the gold rise to the surface. And so the ancients would heat up that gold and they would heat up that gold and the impurities, in other words, everything that was not gold would rise to the top and then they would just skim off the top. And by doing that, the gold then the, 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 the carrot of the gold, and by that I mean K-A-R-A-T, not to confuse some of you that are thinking about lunch right now, uh, the carrot, the, the purity of the gold and the value then would, would increase, okay? And they all got how that worked, and I hope that maybe uh, you get how that works as well, because Peter is drawing an analogy here. Do you see it? The analogy is that fire reveals the gold and fire refines the gold. It reveals what is actually gold and separates the impurities. And by doing that, it refines it. And what he's saying here is that our faith is like gold and our trials are like fire. Fire reveals the genuine gold and trials reveal the genuine faith. Should I say that again? Fire reveals the genuine gold. Trials reveal the genuine faith within us. Now, you don't have to be around the church very long to see this in action. If you're around a church, some family or some individual is going to suddenly find themselves in a trial, a fiery trial, as Peter calls it elsewhere. And you can watch how this works. And sometimes it's beautiful, right? Because here you have sort of generic family A. And you didn't know them that well. You didn't know that much about them. But you hear about the trial. And out of that trial, you see a family that is turning to God in ways that you had never seen before. They're wanting the church to be in prayer for them. They're seeking spiritual uh, counsel and help. They're turning to God in the midst of their trial. They're trusting in things that they, they don't know how it's going to work out, but our trust is in God, and please, won't you pray for us? And you see in that trial a faith that you had never seen before. And it's a beautiful thing to see that. The genuineness of their faith is being revealed by the trial. In a sense, they didn't know what was in them. They didn't realize what they had, that saving faith in them, now showing its true color, its true carrot, in the midst of a fiery trial. At the same time, you don't have to be around the church very long to have generic family B in the church who comes under a similar trial. And they are unprepared for it. Their faith is, has no uh, bandwidth for it. In that trial, all of a sudden, they are overwhelmed. Or they feel like, wait, this is not what I signed up for. They're like, kind of like bandwagon Christians. They sort of join the church, they get on the Christianity bandwagon, and then, pain, and then life hurts. And they're like, I need a different bandwagon. 
And off they go in a hundred different directions, forsaking what they profess to be true in their life. What has the trial done for them? The trial has revealed that their faith was not genuine. The heat of the trial has done that. It is our response to trials that says so much. And by the way, this doesn't mean that uh, we're like super Christians. And like from now on here at Bethel Church, if you ever have a trial, you must be like, my faith is being revealed and I love it. You know, it's not like that at all. There is room in this for normal human concern and worry and fear and the battling of fear and faith and all of that. So it's not like we're all walking around on some great spiritual plane somehow. But in the essence of it, there is an endurance that faith, genuine faith, has that comes through the trial different, better, refined, revealed in ways that previously had been unknown. Trials are also great purifiers. Great purifiers. I read uh, a little bit this week in preparation for this that modern gold refining, they heat up the gold to 3,000 degrees. That's hot, isn't it? And I got thinking to myself, what if you could interview the gold while it's being heated up, while it's coming under this kind of temperature? What might the gold be saying as it's getting hot? I see statements like this. This is hot. This hurts. This stinks. Get me out of here. Why is this happening? Why do I get this and silver gets off easy? Please stop this right now. The guy in charge of this doesn't love me. But what does the goldsmith know? The goldsmith knows that the only way for that gold to be purified is by heat. Now, I stand before you a man who wished that wasn't true. I mean, wouldn't it be great if if the way that our faith could be built and we could grow spiritually would be for God to lavish us with every desire of our hearts? And for there never to be a single problem the rest of our life, that we would just be rich and happy and fat and, you know, healthy and eat what we want and have all these. I mean, wouldn't it be great if that was the way that our faith was was built? Amen. You're not sure if you want to amen that or not. I think that would be fantastic. But that's not the way that it works, is it? In fact, what happens... To people who get everything they want. What do we call children like that? Brats. That's what we call them. The surest way to raise a brat is to give that kid everything he wants all the time. And spiritually, there's a lot of immature Christians running around. Wanting that same kind of an experience. That's immaturity. How do we grow, friends? It's through pain. And you'd better be ready for it. And again, 
This doesn't look great on the church billboards. Come to Bethel Church and suffer along with us. But that's the Bible. And that's the experience of Jesus, who, by the way, we're told to do what? Take up our cross and follow him. Is there room in your understanding of your Christian faith that when trials come into your life, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you? Now, that's easy to say when you're not in a trial. But Thursday of this week, you might be. Are you ready to embrace that trial? Does your faith in God have a bandwidth that can bear that? Peter says your faith is more valuable than gold. Gold was the most valuable thing that they had in that day. Peter says your faith trumps it. Why? Because gold perishes. Gold perishes. But our faith will last forever. Not because of us, but because of that persevering, preserving work of God in our life. When the heat is turned up on us, we want to say stop. God's answer is this. You may not realize it, but your faith is far more valuable than your comfort. I am going to reveal it and refine it. This will be a short-term pain, but it will be a long-term gain. Are you ready? You know, as a pastor, our elders, our pastors, we often are called into those moments of pain. I did two funerals yesterday morning. Two very wonderful, godly men in our church, Peter Hammer and Merle McCluskey. Both families suffering loss. Dear, dear brothers in the Lord. These kinds of things happen. They heard me preach sermons like this all the time. And now they're dead. Their sojourn is over. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you just hoping it doesn't happen? Or that Jesus comes back before it happens? Now with that said, I don't think we should intentionally bring trouble to ourselves. So don't leave the service today and be like, you know what? Trials refine my faith. I want trials in my life and run your car into a car pole or a light pole or something like that. Okay. There's enough pain in this world. We don't need to add to it. It also doesn't mean that we should be trying to refine our uh, other people's faith and say, you know what? He needs to grow Especially you married couples. (laughs) I don't want you thinking that way. Life has enough fiery trials all by itself. So what should we be thinking when we're in a trial? I've got some questions. When the heat is up, when the heat in life is coming up, what should I ask? Here's a few. Am I looking at this from a temporal perspective? Or eternal perspective. Obsess over the problem and it will be overwhelming. Pull back from it and see it from the grand perspective of the gospel and the story of God. Now I have it in perspective. Do I, do I realize that trials are necessary at times and are for my good? This is one of the things that I, in my difficult times in my life, I try to bring to bear the thought in my heart, this is good for me. And that's hard at times, right? Because I got this other part of me going, 
No, it isn't. And then I've got my faith part going, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it is. Yes, it is. You lay in bed at night. You can't sleep because this is going on, right? But faith refuses to give up the belief that there is a sovereign God and that these light and momentary trials are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all, Romans 8. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4. Is my perspective shaped by confidence in God's sovereign and good plan for my life? Do you think God loves you? Or only when things are good and going the way you want? Do you believe he loves you? Friend, he does. He sent Jesus, right? That is Romans 8. If God didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How can we doubt the love of God for us? He sent his son for us. Do I want to grow spiritually more than I want to live comfortably? How many people could honestly say, yes, I want to grow spiritually more than to have a comfortable life? Is faith refinement a personal goal? Do I aspire aspire to a high carrot content? I think those are all very helpful. And maybe we'll get those up on the web in case you would like those. They come right from the text. Now look at the end result here, and we have our fourth certainty in the text. Let me read it again. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fourth certainty is that purified faith has a goal in mind. If my goal is to grow spiritually, I have another goal in that, and it's an eternal perspective where I believe that this trial that I am going through is going to bring honor to God and also is going to bring commendation and honor to me. And this was my aha moment in my studies here, because whenever you see may result in praise and glory and honor, you just assume that this is talking about God, right? Because there are so many passages in the Bible that say that. Philippians 2, for example, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you can look at that and say, well, who is the honor going to? It must be going to God. And indeed, in the end, all honor does go to God. But the text doesn't say that the honor here goes to God. It just says when it comes. It comes when Jesus is revealed. It comes at the end of time. And I think what Peter is doing here is he is including both. There is in my trouble and in my pain, why do I want to respond in a God-honoring way? Because I want God to be honored in this trial. And that is a very good motive for the Christian enduring suffering. That Jesus may be honored in my life. I want him to be glorified in all things. Amen, amen, amen. Amen? All right. So that we got down, especially to church, all about him, church. We got that down. But notice also that there is this reward that is also taught in scripture that I receive. This commentation that I receive from Jesus in honor as he commends, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or a cup of cold water extended my name shall not be forgotten. And a host of other passages that teach us that as we honor the Lord in the ups and the downs of life, that we are putting our treasure in heaven as another example, and that Jesus will reward us. Can that be motivating? I think so. I think so. 
In fact, to illustrate this, I'd like to return to the illustration that Peter is using, how both honors can happen, God and us. Let's go back to gold a second and to talk about gold used in in artwork. You know, back in the first century, they were doing what man has done for centuries, millennia, and that is use gold in art, beautiful gold in, for example, jewelry. If you've uh, been to the museums in Chicago, there are displays there of ancient gold jewelry. And to this day, people pay to have tickets and they go and they stand in front of the display and they marvel at the intricate uh, jewelry and the, and the craftsmanship of that, those beautiful pieces of art. They stand there and they're like, wow. And the wife's like, you ought to get me one of those. And, um, you, know, these, you just kind of stand there and you admire the craftsmanship. You admire the artistic ability. You, you admire the, the art and the worth of that. Wow, that is just so absolutely beautiful. And so gold has itself a kind of, I'm sorry, art has its own kind of praise as we admire the art itself. But there is this other kind of honor that art produces. And that is honor for the maker of the art. So that it's not just the Messiah, it is Handel's Messiah. And it's just not the fifth, it is Beethoven's fifth. And with great pieces of art, the art is valued and treasured, but then the real honor is for the amazing ability of the person who crafted it in the first place. And so how does that apply to what God is doing in the midst of my pain and my sorrow. As I realize that everything that comes into my life is from the sovereign hand of God, as I appropriate that faith, the same faith that trusted in Jesus for my eternity, I now trust him for this trial that I'm experiencing. And I remain faithful to the Lord. I try with the the strength that God provides to obey or to be steadfast or whatever I need to do in that trial. As I do that, God is shaping and forming in me, in the story of my life, a kind of artistic beauty. And the people around you see that and they admire it. And they're like, isn't it beautiful and wonderful what that family is doing in response to that trial in their life? Isn't it great and wonderful what that man is doing as he prepares to lose his job by faith in Jesus, believing God is sovereign over it? And a host of other things as we admire and see that we are, we're like the galley of God. Our lives are a kind of masterpiece, a kind of artistic expression of the amazing power of God, but for our own honor as well. We hang in the galley of God and people and angels and God himself admiring the beauty of what our lives live by faith in times of trouble, what that is, so that we as the art and God as the maker of the art both receive honor and praise. And one motivating factor when I am in a time of trouble is I don't want to lose that reward. I don't want to lose that commendation from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to lose the opportunity to bring honor to him by the way I live by faith, even when life hurts. So that at the end then of all of our troubles and all of our pains, there is God and there is us. His artwork, his masterpieces, honored and honored 
Little h honor to us, big h honor to God. Paintings and painters, symphonies and composers, sinners and Savior may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Much more on suffering in First Peter. We're just getting going. I'm going to ask you uh, just to join me for a word of prayer. Would you stand with me, please, as we conclude our service together?